0: At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and
1: leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally-enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected
0: by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. For my part, I've just finished doing national security changes in the UK, and I don't believe our world will ever be the same again from a cyber point of view. I think we have to look at it differently. I'm dealing with adversarial deep tech every single day now, um, which was not core capability before this Russian war. So we've all got to step up our game, quite frankly. I think that we need to know that the world's changed fundamentally and we need to know our responses.
1: Welcome back to the Government Huddle podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. I'm looking forward to the conversation with my guest today because she's going to bring a really unique and global perspective to a topic that couldn't be more important right now, cybersecurity. But before we jump into our chat, if you're a regular guest of the Government Huddle or this is your first time, please hit subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts and make sure you get all the episodes sent to you right when they drop. And we have some great conversations coming soon that you won't want to miss, like Joseph Lewis, the Chief Information Security Officer at the CDC, and Miss Lily Zeleki, the Deputy CIO at the Department of Defense. And I can't wait to bring those conversations to you. So again, make sure you hit subscribe and you won't miss any of the discussion. But as far as our episode today, as I mentioned, we're going to be discussing cybersecurity. And my guest is not just an expert, but widely regarded as one of the best in the global cyber community. I'm talking about Dr. Jackie Taylor, the CEO and founder of Flying Binary, a UK-based deep tech innovation firm. She was ranked as a top technology, cybersecurity, and IoT global influencer, and as an advisor to the United Nations and the G20. So excited to welcome her to the show, Jackie. Thanks so much for being here with us today.
0: Delighted to be here to talk to you today, Brian.
1: I know this is going to be a great conversation. If, as we were getting to know each other, if it if it goes that way, because it turns out you're you're probably just as bigger, maybe even bigger of a football fan or soccer fan, as we call it in America, than I am. Um, I, as I mentioned to you, I'm a huge, huge Aston Villa supporter, and you are. A Manchester City supporter, which would make my nine year old incredibly happy. <laughs> but even beyond that, something I learned about you literally 10 minutes ago is you're actually working with Man City to kind of help the community, especially engage the younger generation. Tell the listeners a little bit about this because it's incredibly interesting.
0: Yeah, I was invited by the club to speak to the um, business community. Uh, they're very much as a club integrated into their local environment they're very proud of where they are and and they contribute um, and they've always done that I've been a man city fan for 59 years now and at 16 I was helping run that and it's carried on it's just a feature of the club really but what they wanted to do was to explain to their value proposition to the business community and I said well really we should we should make sure that the young people are included in that they're the future workforce and, and essentially, you know, workforce just sitting where you are now. And so I've been involved in all of that work um, really for the last 24 years. And, and, it, and City isn't the only Premier League cl- club that I've spoken at to do this work. But I've recently been up there. Um, I convened a government um, event, let's say, uh, where we were talking about um, the next steps for the UK. And I had the opportunity to go to look at the extension to that community initiative. And now what they're doing is they're saying, well, we need to build facilities beyond training and academies and all of that, but we're going to build something to actually open up what we have as a campus to the local community and literally help it be theirs. But it, it's very interesting. I obviously working in counter-terror radicalization of our youth, particularly in my web science research around that I found that one of the most interesting comments were from a group of young men I was talking to about their future careers they're very interested in the idea that you know cyber can take you to do many things and what they said was it was fantastic to have that conversation at Man City because it was an unsafe conversation in a safe space for them because that's something they live there, they support the teams, so they're comfortable there. But then having conversations about things that are unsafe, radicalisation of our youth, etc., is somewhere that is easier for them to do in a safe space. So the idea that we you know, don't really use those community facilities in that way is something I've tried to work with a number of the premiership clubs about. But really from the age of 16, I've, I've been part of that leadership uh, space for Man City. They've always... Invited the community, and it's just the way the club functions. But now they're doing a much wider outreach and connecting business in and talking about future workforce and really building, you know, sessions on mindset. I I met a bunch of young people I was there a few weeks ago um, on the way in which they should look at their future. There's no limits for them. Those sort of things, all the things that are, you know, our teams are taught at Man City. They do that for the community that lives that surrounds the ground, really.
1: That's really interesting. Did you go into this program, especially since you're engaging the younger generation, did you go into this program with any type of preconceived notions and were you surprised by anything or not surprised by anything? What, what did you find during these conversations? Well,
0: I, they surprised me all the time. They shock me all the time, quite frankly. So my youngest entrepreneur, he's three, he's a climate entrepreneur like I am. He's a blue entrepreneur. He lives by the ocean. He cares about the oceans. And how well-informed they are, but how focused they can be and how comfortable they are at the way they use tech. Not in the way that we all use technology. They're not, they're not a Web 2 generation, digital and all of that. None of that, Jackie. Um, and it's literally they are comfortable with connecting in their space with communities that the way that they look at them and, and social platforms are of little or no interest to them which is great news for us from a cyber point of view, because that's not where, that's where the criminals don't find them as well. So, Yeah, I'll so and,
1: and let's jump into cyber real quick. So uh-huh. um, I am always excited to bring on somebody outside the United States to give us more of a global perspective. It's something that I've enjoyed as my career has evolved getting into global government. And I am really curious to know, from your vantage point in the U.K., What's something you think that is unique to the UK when it comes to cybersecurity that's working that perhaps other countries haven't evolved into or you think is is just more mainstream in the UK that is really making an impact?
0: Well, I think that we we know that the work we do uh, in cyber is not some sort of mystical, magical box and we all collaborate so we i think that that would became visible in 2016 when we created the national cyber security center and an ncsc has been amazing and has spawned other organizations like it across the world uh, i remember speaking at davos about it in 2019 and they were saying what you're going to do with that and it's like we don't know yet but we know it's core capability that connects our intelligence services with our population and our businesses and our researchers and our academics in a different way, and I think one of the things that's that that value proposition from 2016 to now. Well, first off, we have the, the first woman that heads it up, so that's amazing, and was appointed um, about a month or so ago. Um, but also we have a program called Cyber Essentials, which literally teaches um, the best practices, and you know you you get certified each year. And it teaches the best practices and it evolves those best practices. So if depending on who clients are, we always encourage them to do cyber essentials because that's the grounding for everything. And you want your core cyber capability to be within your company. I mean, we're quite happy to do whatever work anybody asks us to do. If it's you know securing the, the UK in in the in the cyber world, then obviously we would do that. But we're very passionate about the idea that you should build your own capability inside your own organization um, because lots of what we do can be productized in that way. And Cyber Essentials is a great example of how you can build capability outside of our cyber industry and connect it directly to business.
1: Do you mean from an educational standpoint, build that kind of that muscle within an organization so you you're kind of building a culture around? It? Is that what you mean?
0: No, the the actual staff. I mean, you may not have a CISO, you may not have a security department, but you actually build that that uh, cybersecurity practice and teach that uh, within you know your nominated folks within your organization. So you know we have organizations perhaps about four or five people strong because lots of our, our technology companies don't need lots of people. We all use tech um, and. You can teach them to do what we all do and um, because Cyber Essentials takes you through that step-by-step step, and you know that you've got the best setup um, uh, in terms of cyber defenses. Build actual capability within your company.
1: When it comes to that, I feel like, and this is not going to be something that's new to you, is, I mean, there's a global conversation around a, a talent gap within cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. How do you think that organizations should be approaching that? Is there something that's that you're seeing within the UK that's different, or even globally that's different, that that countries are doing to help fill those gaps? Is, is a program like what you're talking about something that's working?
0: Well, it's a slightly different thing, I think. I've, I've been working in Ukraine since the 10th of February, 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, counter-terror work like I've never had to do before. And so I think what's happened since the Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed that landscape. So I'm only going to talk about what i see now as opposed to what we were dealing with yeah. before the russian invasion but i think that the reality of it is that we haven't made enough progress we're still not you know still across the world to threat-based give up on that no no, no possibility to move on that agenda anymore we need to be more risk-based and and also you know uh i think about this from my own point of view but then for, Many of the young people I work with um, that I'm sort of coaching into a cyber career, I'm neurodiverse and I'm visually disabled. And I think in a different way. I'm a dyslexic thinker. And I think in a very lateral way, i.e. not the way the criminals think. And I think that one of the gaps that we literally miss all the time, we're putting that straight in the UK at the moment, but is the fact that the neurodiverse workforce is not in our cyber industry. And that's because the routes through are fairly sort of streamlined as to how do you get to be doing what Jackie does? You tend to, you know, in my case, you've got all the way through and you've got a PhD and all the rest of it. And because we have that sort of career pathway that doesn't include a more lateral view of the way the world is now, I think we're missing a trick. And we've literally in the UK been, been over the last six months saying, well, what would that look like? How would we do that? How would we bring, you know, the more neurodiverse workforce that doesn't think in the way a criminal would expect and therefore challenges, you know, us as cyber specialists as well because they will look at the world in a different way. And if they're under 30, they will look at the world in a way that quite frankly is scary. You know, I have um, entrepreneurs in uh, Mumbai in India and they come up with things and I think, where on earth did that come from? I could never have thought about it like that. But that's just the way they think. So we, we the thing that gaps in terms of filling cyber talent, we're, stu- we're too restrictive about what we think our career pathways are. And, and opening that up in the UK is why what we're calling an apprenticeship route. Literally, you can go in, you can start to, from, from sort of 18, 16, 18, you can go in and start to do things that are in the environment. And then once we know... What, you, what you're what you interested in, what you're capable of, what the, what the gaps we're seeing, then we find a route through to, to move you into, you know, an, um, an intelligence analyst type route, a more standard route, but you don't start there. And that's the flying binary mission. The reason I care about this so much is an equity mission because we don't all start in the same place. But if we're going to get core capability and, and make that capacity and fill some of these gaps, we need to think a bit more laterally about the talent the talent pipelines we're growing.
1: Jackie, when you say a, a neurodiverse talent group, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, there are 50 profiles of people that think differently. I mentioned mine. I'm a, dy- I'm a dyslexic thinker. And my web science research is understanding those core capabilities of people that do not think in what's called a neurotypical way. And most of our cyber industry is set in that way. We all—it's it, rare for people like me to do what I do. I'm—I'm I'm un- unusual because we don't tend to make it into the in- industry because the roots in are through the more academic or standard educational pieces, and we don't fit that mold. And so neurodiversity is, is literally different ways in which our brains are wired, and that the, literally the synapses in our brains are just done in a different way so largely if you're neurodiverse you won't have great auditory skills lots of our neurotypical world works on an auditory basis we're talking now Um, and so that's an auditory input and so you enable neurodiverse talent like mine by teaching them um, to be kinesthetic which means that they they engage with tech and they use tech to enable auditory capabilities that normally, if you're just listening, are very hard to enable for people like me. Um, but there's a whole spectrum and there's 50, 50 learning differences that w- that are making a difference in our cyber industry. And depending on how you, you know, exactly what combination of that you might have, you'll, you'll find that, well, we're finding in our schools about 28% of our cohort who are gen alpha, so they're like 19 and under. Um, Will have some of these capabilities and learn differently.
1: You mentioned you've been working with Ukraine since the beginning of 2022, and that's sort of how you and I came together. And I'm yes. I'm grateful that uh, Dennis Nazarenko was able to bring us together, um, and and kind of have this conversation. What are, what's some of the things when it comes to cybersecurity? And um, as some of the listeners know, I've I've had the the deputy CIO for Ukraine as well as the CIO for the city of Kiev. And one of the common themes throughout both of those conversations was around cybersecurity. Um, And I remember distinctly when uh, they talked about the lead-up to the actual physical invasion, what Mm -hmm. that ramp-up looked like from a cybersecurity perspective. And I think we've seen warfare of a different type of generational approach in this type of uh, aggression. What have. have you found... And, and what have you extracted from the engagement between Ukraine and Russia from that cyber perspective?
0: Well, it's a really good question. I'm, I'm this is my third war. Um, so um, my first war was the Falklands war many, many years ago as a young aerospace engineer where I had to, uh, I was part of the team, the Falklands-19 that retrofitted RF Vulcan to get her down to Ascension Islands to bomb the runway in order that we could land our special forces. And I thought that was quite hard. And then Afghanistan, which was something else again, flying squadrons of typhoon over as data centres in order to connect capability in a desert. It's like, how do you do that? How do you string all that tech together so we've got comms there? Um, and I've been in counter-terror since um, the day that Paris was attacked, um, which was the 13th of November 2015. We pivoted our company because we have technology that nobody else does to be able to talk to the 20 billion connected devices on the planet. And so we, we you know, we pivoted our company to be able to be part of that counter-terror defense. And so you'd think, you know, being in that world for 2015, and, and also I'm a science diplomat and Russia, China, Iran are where I work. You'd think that that would be, you know, something that I would say, well, it's an extension of, but it's not. Um, I've been working with Ukrainian companies for tech companies for many years because I I do due diligence work for investors, what's called Series C investors, so hundred million uh, plus investment in a company. They you know they bring me in to say from a tech point of view, what are they buying? Are there any risks that they need to mitigate, etc. And I saw over the pandemic that some of the portfolios that I comment on and I I review we're having a smattering and then a bigger chunk of Ukrainian tech companies, which is fine. They're fantastic. But what I said to the portfolio um, uh, managers is, this is a risk you've not mitigated because you haven't seen that a lot of your on-soil is actually on-soil in Ukraine. And so what happened on the 10th of February twenty two, was a bunch of these companies got in touch and said, don't believe anything you read. There's an invasion coming. We might not have anything more than just a few days what do we need to do what's the plan so we had 14 days which was not long enough obviously and then today i've got 300 um ukrainian organizations fifteen thousand people that work across the 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 sort of setup and they're actually in 20 different countries because it's not possible to operate what we need to do in just ukraine today and i think that i have never seen something that's using you know our our sort of cyber capabilities but in a very medieval way because there's an on-soil activity which is just you know the the invasion and the push of the troops and all the traditional warfare and then a cyber warfare that's layered on top of all of that and um for my part i'm i've just finished doing national security changes in the UK. And I don't believe our world will ever be the same again from a cyber point of view. I think we have to look at it differently. I'm dealing with adversarial deep tech every single day now, um, which was not core capability before this Russian war. So we've all got to step up our game, quite frankly. I think that we need to know that the world's changed fundamentally and we need to know our responses.
1: What are those responses? I mean, how do we step up our game? If I'm, a, if I'm a government organization listening to this and understanding that the world is changing, and we've been through massive change over the past three or four years, yeah. right? Um, but this just has obviously exacerbated it. What do you think those steps are for us to be able to build a more resilient posture against what, what's coming?
0: Well, I think the reality of it is we don't do enough um, collaboration, and um, we don't do enough where we're uh, understanding our value chain. We're, we're very focused on very fragile supply chains. That's that's the first thing that we need to look at, um, which is why something like Cyber Essentials is so great because that core capability sits in the organisations once they've they've achieved it. Um, but also as a sector, we've got to do better because we we still tend to um, treat this a little bit like it's some form of magic. It's a black box and what have you. Whilst we keep the capability to ourselves, and it's got to be a cyber specialist that does this thing, then actually we just play into the hands of of the new form of cyber warfare. And in fact, one of the things that's been very interesting for me, um, you know, helping Ukraine to Um, have a different response has been the responses of the communities across Ukraine Um, and the fact that we have mobilized communities that are invisible unless you happen to be working on the tech that we're working on and and we use web3 tech that doesn't depend on the web itself it actually depends on the, the internet and it uses the internet in a different way and those individuals have become like a core um, response team from a community point of view. So I've been with the Ukrainian team today and we've been saying, well, how will having mobilised that, how will we use that as a as a response in a more industrial way once they've won the war? And I think that one of the things that I, I do, I'm advising my clients at the moment about is, Don't just stand at at supply chains and wonder about those, which is what pandemic sort of uprooted for everybody. You've got to look at the entire value chain and then how do you build some resilience in that? But then again, you know, we, from a UK point of view, we're obviously collaborating with our normal collaboration that we would do across our nations. Um, But then where else are we collaborating? Where else do we, um, should we look? So for example, tomorrow, I've got a big piece of work in Singapore who, you know, Singapore have, have looked at all, that, have, all that's all that gone on and said, and how could we take what we already do and we join in on that? And how could, you know, what would our contribution be? Uh, and so I think it's more of a global problem. It's obviously a polarised global problem geopolitically. But um, if all we're doing as companies is looking to just our company and our supply chains that's not resilient enough, not anymore.
1: It feels like, I mean, when I think about this, one of the things that comes to mind is kind of that um, value in aggregate, right? So you look at yeah. the supply chain or the value chain, and there's so many different pieces. You talk about how fragile it is. There's so many different pieces. Mm. And honestly, if there if there's a, uh, an analogy here, it's, it's honestly the idea around a, the weakest link, right? If you have one little small cog in that supply chain it throws the entire thing off so you have to build resilience in every single piece and i can imagine that's daunting for any organization whether you're a commercial entity or a government looking to build that in i mean are you finding that organizations are are challenged by going through this process it's arduous
0: it is arduous but there's something else that that went on that that you would say well how's that connected And and i said exactly that Um, I did the work for the G20 looking at the critical national infrastructures and the uh, cyber readiness and all the rest of it. And um, the United Nations teams reached out to me and said, well, that's all very well for G20, but what about the rest of the world? And I said, well, that's a good point. And so I looked into that and and I've been working with the UN since April 2020. And it turns out that the work I've been doing to actually... Look at mobilizing resources across nations, the 198 UN member states, to address the climate change issues, and not unlike solving the problem that we're talking about right now. And so that there is, um, I worked during pandemic whilst I was starting up that UN work with some of the Fortune 500 to have the conversations about um, climate commitments and in doing the work to make the climate commitments it actually exposed some of those weakest links as you're talking about and particularly uh, people the people element of this how robust is it is you know things like your if you've got to if your tech is going to be moved somewhere else like i've done in ukraine how does that work and and how resilient is it and so it it turns out that in terms of preparing for uh, making climate commitments and uh, flying binary is a high level climate leader in the UN. And we teach that it turns out in doing that, that actually exposes some of the weaker links elements of the cyber resilience within a company.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things, and when we talk about cyber resilience, it's kind of an interesting di- dichotomy because one of the things that that's brought us together uh, along with Dennis is, the smart city focus that Ukraine yeah. is having, and this is not unlike many cities around the world where it feels like smart cities, or at least the the intentional focus around smart cities has certainly proliferated. But when you expand into that type of smart city posture, you're expanding your attack vector from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, yeah. What are some of the things that you're seeing? And, and I'm curious to know why you think that more cities, uh, beyond the obvious, right, but, but why you think more cities are taking that intentionality into looking to expand their smart city proliferation and how that is impacting the resilience of that, of that city, of that government?
0: Well, this is something I specialise in. I've done for the UK initially for Brexit in 2017, and just refreshed based on the work in Ukraine. I'm the world's first smart cities are So I advise on this across the world. And the the reality of it is, we have had a movement pre-pandemic towards the centres of countries being being their cities. The move from the urban, uh, move from the rural into the urban setting, and so. You know, whichever angle you look at it, whether it's the fact that there's a migration of population to it, whether it's the fact that that's meant it's been more complicated, pandemic has affected those populations as well. And and then the, the other thing about all of that is um, smart cities uh, create 60 percent of our emissions. So they're largely responsible for the climate change crisis. And so there's been lots of reasons why people have looked at that. But we, with what's happened with the Russian war in Ukraine, that has stepped back somewhat. I became the world's first smart cities are because I commented on that attack vector that you were talking about, Brian. And there's there's this view that smart cities is a thing. It's not a thing. I mean, in, I'll just give you a European example. There's 95,000 cities across Europe, across the EU 27. The only thing that connects them all is they're all different. So, so one of the reasons this becomes an attack vector is it's done in a homogenous way. And, and of course, if you understand how the tech is deployed and how it's being used, then it's really easy to do a CNI-type um, attack and, and bring down a whole supply chain, a whole you know area of a country. And that was particularly the work I did in G20 Um, pre-pandemic of understanding that that can't be treated that way and one of the things that's really been a an issue is if you have that tech that's homogenous how do you harden it what do you do about it and there's really sort of four elements of of, uh, categories of things you've got to pay attention to only one of which is the tech and one I mentioned before, which is the people, but it's got to be a more holistic approach, and understand that what you've got is a a group of loosely coupled, interoperable services, of which suppliers and not city leaders or elected leaders are in control of that, and so you can the way in which you would design um, around that is actually very different. And and I've been I've put uh, international standards together to explain that, but it's really interesting to see the movement away from that homogenous, throw tech at it, have intelligent lampposts, all of that stuff just fading into, you know, there was a there was a rise and there was a sort of a a, at the top of 2018 was way it was being done, but that's not what's being done now. And interestingly for me when i look at the developing world some of the work i do across india for example they are putting together a decentralized version so they're not connecting things up the way we have here and that's partly because we've got grid services and we've got cities that have already got tech and what have you but the developing world are taking a very different approach to it so i think that there isn't there isn't t- treating it as a homogenous rather than a heterogeneous approach you're bound to have you're bound to be building in cybersecurity attack vectors, no doubt about that. But what, then you have to look at uh, another approach to it.
1: And and I think when the whole smart city movement kind of kicked off,
0: mm-hmm. it
1: became this shiny object, right? Yes. Very similar to kind of, I mean, you, you touched on it, right? Let's let's put a, let's put smart things everywhere, yeah, and. It, there wasn't a strategy around it. it. I mean, not only, not only the actual value, but also the cyber security perspective, there just wasn't that strategic vision. I feel like as things have evolved, they've pulled that back a little bit and they've taken a look at, okay, what are we ultimately trying to accomplish and how can we do that with the smallest footprint? But Leveraging technology to drive that value forward—it's—it's it's not about the technology anymore. It's about that end result. Um, something we talk about a lot on this show, and I, and I know this is something that's probably very, uh, very much in your mind. Where you put the citizen at the center of what you're trying to do, and and kind of move outward from there. And I think, to me, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take. I feel like that's changed the way cities around the world have approached their smart city evolution, right?
0: It has, and I think that I'm one of the top 10 industrial Internet of Things uh, influencers across the world because we have always done that decentralised approach, not specifically about cyber, but because the way in which it's an agency model, a city, and it's not one thing. And elected leaders change every four or five years, and they don't necessarily agree with what civic leaders want to do, who take more of a a sovereign wealth investment piece. So you've actually got a complex mix, multi-agency model, sprinkling tech all around that has just been nightmares. And as I say, I'm I'm the co-founder of the data journalism industry, and some of my international journalism friends were like, You know, about this smart city stuff, this was back in 2018. What is going on? And it's like, Well, because you can't just throw tech at this, I'm absolutely yeah. with you. Tech is the enabler of a smart mm-hmm. city to drive outcomes. What for? Their better health and well-being of our citizens. So putting the citizen at the heart of the industrial Internet of Things has always been what we've done at Flying Binary. And that blueprint for Europe was what I was presenting that day um, that Paris was attacked to say, let's not make the mistakes that have been made elsewhere. Let's understand that we've got a Web3 setup which is decentralised, but the citizen is at the heart of it. Because the one thing that's true about Web3Tech is it affects the way our society functions. It's not just tech anymore. You know, you're actually doing a a sensor array around a piece of critical national infrastructure. Best be sure what that does. Best be sure who supplied that kit. Best be sure what it's connected to. Do you see what I mean? So I think that it's a different mindset to do cyber in this world than it is perhaps for an internal organization that does have a supply chain, but largely closes itself off from that. You know, the, the AI work that we do, I mean, I, one of my most famous sayings is no cloud, no AI. So better embrace it. You know, obviously cloud's where I specialize, but that's because it's that's an inevitable. You can't have mm-hmm. a smart city or a sustainable community without cloud tech. 100 percent it's so uh, so
1: when i think of like a poor strategy and kind of the way it was approached before honestly Mm -hmm. i think about myself and and my my wife and i and our approach to iot within our own house we just kind of put alexa devices everywhere not really thinking about what we're trying to do we don't need an alexa device in every single room and then when we do we're not actually engaging the right one. And the one around the corner is actually responding. And, yep. and now the information is wrong and it thinks it's talking to my wife and it's talking to me. And that 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 feels very analogous to the type of strategy that was rolled out in kind of that smart city infancy. And now Absolutely. they're getting a little bit smarter about strategically putting things in certain places for a reason. Um, and I, I wonder if those reasons have changed do you think the pandemic has pushed more cities to focus on smart city programs? Is that something that has kind of expanded? Because I remember when the pandemic kicked off and, and the conversation was around some of the technology changing, right? Is there going to be autonomous sanitizing machines and, and things of that nature? But from a strategic perspective, do you think that the pandemic has pushed more cities to focus on becoming smarter?
0: I think it's, it's pushed them to become more sustainable because they've understood yeah that that's fair. Smart yeah. is actually not an outcome that anybody wants and, and it's really interesting because the reality of it is um, I stood up on a dava stage January 2019 to say what I'm really concerned about because I was asked to speak about the future of the cybersecurity industry is um, a zero day. Uh, event across the world and people are like oh yes Jackie and what and so I got you know I got a lot of pushback at at Davos and my point was I think it will be something not connected with cyber and and what I was actually concerned about at the time was um, uh, almost a million children in America that hadn't been vaccinated for measles and an epidemic of measles actually killing children That was the thing I had in my mind when I was describing it. So I described all that and they're like, oh yeah, a virus that goes across the world, kills children. And and why would that? Because actually people will panic and they will do things that because it's our children. And and interestingly, a billion people came online within two weeks of us moving into pandemic. And that threw all of our sort of estate into disarray. And of course, what happened for cities was their citizens came online and their only communication was you know virtually and so then uh, cities were having to cope with the fact that they were somehow going to manage what they normally did as citizen services to an online population that was at the other end of a keyboard expecting and you know i don't think anybody came out of that well but it really did show the fragility of of provision of services to citizens and you know in the only people that were ready for that event was the criminals because they work online anyway and that was my point about we as an industry have to mobilize differently so we have to create not just capability but capacity in this new world i'm describing
1: jackie as we're starting to wrap up i'm curious to know so if if somebody's listening here especially some of the government leaders out there and they're thinking we're we're starting to take initial steps into what a smart city evolution could look like, what our strategy looks like, or maybe, maybe there are, are people out there that have already taken those steps and they want to understand how can they broaden that? But what are some good approaches and and good first ways of looking at how to build a smart city strategy from your perspective?
0: Um, Tech's inevitable. So you need to have that at the core because that is genuinely the enabler. Um, one of the things that everybody trips over, and that's the initial work I did in the, U- in the United Nations, was the procurement. The procurement capabilities you have as an organisation, as a, as a state, as a nation, usually are the bottleneck for anything um, from an enabling outcome, better health and wellbeing. So that's the first thing I changed in the UN is the procurement approach to this because you have to be able to put it in the landscape I've described and, you know, these complex contracts and, and uh, you not having innovators, not having access to doing what you do, you will just repeat the mistakes of the past that I've talked about. So that's, that's another thing. Um, outcomes is a key thing. You can't do it all. So choose. So, for example, you know, um, in doing the work I'm doing in Kyiv now and, and thinking about what happens for Ukraine the day after they win the war and what does that mean, that resilience that needs to be built into a wider capacity, start with something that actually makes a difference in where you are. And and it's really interesting when I do this work uh, using this, this um, what we call web observatory tech that we have, where city leaders and elected leaders say, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do the other. When I go across the population and say, this is the plan, like I did with the G20, the population always go, wrong plan, not what we need. And and not that necessarily what anybody's planning is the wrong thing, but it will be in the wrong order. If you don't bring citizens with you in whatever you're going to do, you will be forever trying to correct that. And so one of the very first things I do is find out what people think they need. And I remember a famous uh, piece that I was doing um, in Estonia where I actually sat the Estonian government down with some of the population. And they, I, I knew what was being planned. And the thing that the citizens had was there is one tram route in Tallinn in Estonia. If you fix that, you'll fix most of all the problems you're talking about. And, but that, that dialogue needs to happen. Um, Because quite frankly, it's really expensive to get it wrong and you will wind up your younger citizens who are quite comfortable with this technology and will make sure you know that they're very unhappy. Um, But I I think that more than anything, you've got to know, you've got to decide on what that is in this multi-agency model. But obviously, what you've got to do is make sure that you are not building something that compromises your citizens, your infrastructure your you know your whole estate have you can't do it all at once but you do need to build it with a foundation or a core capability and then do that out and my best advice is always pick a theme so in ukraine for example our theme will be energy for the obvious reasons given that that's been you know um that's been the way in which russia has attacked ukraine so energy resilience will turn into energy security as a res- way of doing it in some cases, you know, pandemic have left cities and countries in, in, you know, not in a great state. And health is their focus. Um, in, you know, in the UK, we've had uh, education as our focus. So it's complex. But the reality of it is, it needs some, it's, it needs some deep dive work going on. It needs to be pull on some of the use cases of where the successes are, um, and then it needs to to be negotiated with your citizens because if you don't do that you really are wasting your money
1: yeah i i really like that advice around picking a theme because that's so important i think anytime Mm. whether it's a smart city or whatever type of program you're rolling out i think if you have that that backbone that alignment you can always Mm -hmm. funnel whatever decision you're making into i think that keeps you on track and it makes sure that you're hitting that mission outcome that you're trying to hit so i think Everything you just said is is incredibly important, but I really like that last piece. That theme can really galvanize everyone and get them thinking in the right direction, moving in the right direction and kind of drive strategy forward. So I think that's really good advice.
0: One, yeah. one extra thing I just thought about while you were saying that, because you're absolutely right. Our young people don't want to have this done to them. They, they're comfortable with technology. They're comfortable being part of this ecosystem we talked about. Um, they want to participate in it. So the other thing I always do is ask them. I say to them, these are our priorities, this is what we're planning to do. And literally, you know, for the, let me think, for G20, it was 22 million people across the world in the G20 nations fundamentally disagreeing with what they needed to do, but the under-30s knew exactly what they <laughs> needed. And so, you know, if you can ask them, why wouldn't you ask them? It's their cities we're building, not for us, really. Yeah you know, it's our sort of children, our grandchildren that, that this technology needs to enable those better outcomes.
1: It's a good reminder, really good reminder. Jackie, thanks so much for being here. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, we've unpacked so much. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience?
0: I think the, the reality of where we are is in whatever situation you're in with wh- whatever role you have, that collaboration with the, you know, best in breed is absolutely the way to do this. Um, so I founded something called the, the Empty Economy. I have over 10 million businesses in 172 countries across the world. And we literally collaborate on what that looks like. We don't build our businesses for for profit only, we build them for purpose. You know, a purpose of flying binary one is the obviously the net zero agenda and saving our planet, but everybody has different purposes they do that. You can make the capability you need to build and then to capacity is always to be achieved by collaborating. So who are you reaching out to? What within your sector can you can you pull together? And, and that's really where what I talk about is that's intelligent leadership for the industrial internet of things.
1: That's great. Hey, Jackie, I have one last question for you. Very, very important. And, <laughs> and under the auspices of... I am I'm conceding the Premier League to Manchester City. Uh-huh. Aston Villa will be there next year. We're coming for you, <laughs> and you don't have a chance. But this year I'll concede it. But here's my question. You have Real Madrid in the semifinal coming to uh, to, to win a Champions League, the first ever that Man City will ever win. Mm-hmm. And I'll remind you that Aston Villa has won a European championship. But this will <laughs> be the first ever Manchester City has ever won. And an FA Cup final against uh against your biggest rival Manchester United here's my question does Manchester City win the treble
0: they do indeed and i'm looking at a picture here of jack grealish in <laughs> training at 5:25 so that's roughly about 4 hours ago he's in goal
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, you know what hey he can man, do everything he team, can
1: do everything jack really can that, do everything
0: that pep and his team are not preparing for and you know i, I think the reality of it is that the club uh, we've got shirts from the club today and it's on the treble's on and we're so excited about it and more to the point um just being able to play our football the way that we are and and inspire people to do more and can't wait to see you know aston villa come after us next year and and the rest but um the fa cups we've got our hand hand on that trophy already um and an empty hands from a, a manchester united point of view that's a <laughs> We're I, losing i'm sure that, that, one. that
1: that'll that'll make it all the better and <laughs>
0: how,
1: how how amazing would it be that two manchester teams are the ones that have completed the treble in the history of of yeah. england so that would be remarkable
0: really upset the liverpool fans so we definitely want to do
1: everything everything upsets the liverpool fans so that's okay hey jackie i honestly this has been an absolute pleasure thanks so much for spending the time with me today really enjoyed it
0: brilliant brian and i think that we covered so much ground i love that
1: absolutely these
0: things are all linked and the, the golden thread is cyber isn't it
1: it's foundational it's horizontal it's one of those horizontal technologies so absolutely
0: and if there's ever any chance to do anything again or or any sort of follow-up count me in i just think it's really important what you're doing here to sort of share like you say voices that perhaps people don't get to hear and and situations that you know we haven't met before like this cyber war um that russia's conducting I, i think the more we spread that knowledge the more likely we are to be um create the capability to make it happen and 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 just defeat it basically.
1: I completely agree. Thanks so much.
0: Okay, take care.
1: This has been the Government Huddle podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast, and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at A B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.